Amen. Amen. So, uh, if you don't know us already, Christian Sue, nice to meet you. And we're, we're starting a new series today. Uh, and the, the heart of it is to get at God's heart of relational connection. The title of the series is Hashtag Relationship Goals. I'm serious. That's the title of the series. Hashtag Relationship Goals. Isn't that awfully current and helpful to remember? And then the title of this first uh, message is Free from Fear and Fully Connected. Free from Fear and Fully Connected. Uh, our heart for this series is, is to do several things. One is just to get into the realm of our deepest heart's place of connecting with humanity. And that at that place is God's heart to connect with you. God wanted a family so badly <laughs> that he created those in his image called man and woman. And I believe that when we delve into the realm of God's heart for family, we're going to delve into his heart for relationship. We're going to expose fears that keep us from thriving in relationship. And I believe that what we're also going to do in this season is come into a place of where Frontier defines what our connectedness looks like in this community. We're still a very uh, new, fresh, developing church family. We're figuring a lot out. If you didn't already know that, we're figuring a lot out. <laughs> Being raw, real, and open. And, and what we would like to invite you into is as you ask the Lord throughout this series, Lord, align me with heaven's heart for doing relationship like you have created me to do. Also ask the Lord, Father, what part does the Frontier family play and what part do I play into that? Is that fair enough? Amen. Okay, so where are we going to start? We're going to start in the beginning. In Genesis. So if in you Genesis could open two. to Genesis, that would be fabtabulous. We don't have the slide for that one. Oh, Take it away. You're going to have to read. So in thinking about our deepest, most intimate, most vulnerable relationships, I just began to process what builds those, what strengthens those, and if we're establishing it after God's heart, what does that look like? And he brought me back to before even Eve was created, when it was just Adam and just God in the garden, walking in the cool of the day. Um, and then he brought me, a lot of my theology gets filtered through having children. Because being God's child, and I have, well, we have a lot of them. So there's lots of opportunities to learn about God through our children. But he was reminding me, what about when you go on a mommy-son date? What's so special about you just taking one of your children out? Or when Christian goes on a daddy-daughter date? We hear about it for weeks after. The children talk about it. They look forward to it. They plan on it, and it doesn't happen too often. Thanks to Mimi and Farfar, it probably happens more than it wouldn't. Um, but it's the, when I was planning or praying about that, I was like, God, what is it? And he's like, it's the intentionality, the time, when that child has the full affection of your heart. And he said, now go back and imagine, we've been doing imaginative prayer, Adam walking through the garden, and I was showing him my creation. I was unveiling to him things that I had built for him. And then we even did a wild zoo date. I took him and I said, name this animal. And if you know, your kids love to go to the zoo. And I'm like, Adam got to go to the zoo. He got to go to the best zoo that there ever was. And so Adam built or began to build this relationship with God when it was just him and God. 
this intentionality, this time, this focus with him and God. And then in Genesis, we realize that then in verse 21, the Lord caused a deep sleep to come upon Adam. And this is where Eve gets brought into the picture. And he takes a rib out of Adam's side and forms Eve. But while he's like, I didn't stop with just a father-son date. Adam was in a deep sleep. And I got to have my first ever daughter-dad date. Where we don't know, and it doesn't say this is taking some liberative, I guess, license. But a day is like a thousand days to the Lord. So we don't know how long that moment lasted with Eve and Father God. But we know Adam was in a deep sleep. Eve was being formed. And then in my mind, imagining he's taking Eve and showing her, do you smell the lilies of the field? Do you see what I've created for this garden for you to live, move, have your being thrive in? And then it says the rib was taken from God, taken from the man into the woman, and he brought her to the man. This is as the story shifts. But the father is walking Eve towards onto the man. And if you pause in that moment, you think, when else do fathers walk their bride onto their husband? Every single wedding since. And we see a glimpse of the first wedding in this moment where the father brought his daughter onto the man. And Adam awakens to see the desire of his heart being brought to him. So both Adam and Eve begin their marriage having their hearts filled up from this time in their relationship with God. So the whole process of relationship and what we want you to really catch is you begin from overflow. It's not this striving, striving, oh, we got to really work hard on a relationship. It's like, no, pause. If this is broken, go back and fill up your relationship with God to move from a place of overflow. And it's the first marriage we really see God's design and his dream for every marriage since. And every person. <laughs> and it's what's a beautiful every thing pers- about every the marriage relationship, since. relationship yeah. is that it's God's definition of the most intimate relationship. So it's not about whether you're married or not. It's about how God is exposing his most intimate relationship with us and our most intimate relationship with people and how that is positioned in the very beginning of humanity's exchange with God and what we learn about that. So today the image that we want to to play off of is a bit of that of, of the wedding heart of God, the marriage heart of God, the relational heart of God that's in that. And so I want to read 1 John 4, 18 before we get into Genesis 3. And 1 John 4.18 is a super common and well-known verse. And it goes, it goes like this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected, has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So the only, the only thing I want us to kind of put, put our finger on with that is that Love and fear are how the Lord defines the two polarizing effects of his nature. Fear versus love. And so when we get into Genesis 3, uh, let's keep that in, in our mind. And would you actually read that, Genesis 3, 6 to 19? So when the woman saw the tree was good for food... And that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit, and she ate. 
And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her. And he ate by his own choice. <laughs> this is going to be all day, I have a feeling. Adding, adding that in for you. You're welcome. <laughs> and then the eyes were both opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God. Oh my goodness. It's a long passage. You might want to hurry up. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave me, by the way, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent, he deceived me and I ate it. And the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enemy and enmity, enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. The woman, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. And in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring it forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. But by the sweat of your face you shall eat the bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Thank you, lovely wife. I always like to think of you in fig leaves when I read that passage. <laughs> TMI. TMI. <laughs> Just you, though, not me. And don't Again, anyone TMI, else do that. Please stop picturing whatever he is saying right now. <laughs> so, so the <laughs> focus, focus. That was your rabbit trail. The, the thing that I always get distracted with for reals when I read that passage is thinking about what just happened. All of humanity brought on a curse in this one exchange. And I can't help but taking most of the time I'm thinking about that curse and thinking of what they were moving their entire life from that point forward out of. The type of environment that they were moving out of, that they had. It's amazing, isn't it? One of the things I haven't uh, until recently thought a lot about is the fear and the different fears that come up and that are exposed relationally in this exchange. So we want to point out three fears that are exposed in this encounter. The first is that distance is birthed through the fear of vulnerability. We, we see that in verse 9 and 10. Why are you hiding? I was afraid, and so I hid. So immediately, what is exposed? There's a vulnerability 
that all of a sudden, when they realize that they're naked, that they're vulnerable, it causes them to hide. They make the distance between them and God. Man causes that distance when they can come under the nakedness, the vulnerability. And what is that? It's ultimately a realm of shame. Shame entered. Their nakedness was exposed. And so what was then the attempt was to cover up. The fig leaf represents that cover up. Do we not do the same thing in our own life with our own shame? We're always taking whatever is shameful of our life and we try to cover it. That's natural. The third is there's distance from God. We have to get to a place of honesty of what is keeping us distant. In our marriage, oftentimes we don't start in complete discord or a fight or whatever else. What happens is we're disconnected and distant. And it may not be shame, but what happens is if we're not honest with what we're feeling, we can't bridge the gap that's between us. It works like that with the Father. They hid out of their shame and it caused distance. Do you have an example about that? When we first got married, if you didn't know, I married a comedian. He's toned down a little bit. But he would be very sarcastic in his humor. And I didn't always appreciate. I didn't know you were telling this example. <laughs> You're welcome. I did not always appreciate the, sweating <laughs> he's sweating right a little bit. He's a little nervous. He doesn't know what I'm going to say. It's a wild card. <laughs> My, or I didn't appreciate his sarcasm. Because often what sarcasm does, or joking, is it's covering up a lesser a vulnerability. But it's like, oh, I don't really have to be vulnerable. I can just make a joke about that. But there's also a saying that there's a hint of truth in every jest. So in his sarcastic remarks, I would be like, oh, he really means that. And even though his heart was probably most likely definitely for my good, in that moment, I didn't feel that. So then I went on a discovery, sarcasm. Why is it so hard for me to, to digest when he's sarcastic with me? And the, actually the Greek root word sark, it means a tearing of flesh. And so then we began to have this conversation. Let's not be sarcastic because I never feel built up, edified. And ultimately what the Lord was showing is like it's because it causes this subtle distance between both of you. And it's this fear for him of being vulnerable. And granted, we've known each other almost 15 years, so he's not really sarcastic with me anymore, which is great. Win-win. Always growing. Um, but realizing just that example of that fear of vulnerability which often some of the best comedians in life have had hard things happen to them. And a way of joking or being sarcastic is their defense mechanism. But what it does is it puts distance between him and I that's now been restored. But Yeah, so the yeah. question is just what do you use or what do we use as, as human beings to cover up our insecurities, our vulnerability, our shame? And how can we bring that to the Lord honestly or bring that to a person honestly and confront that, and confront it. Don't leave it hiding, don't leave it hiding. So the first distance is birthed in the fear of vulnerability, and the second is, is that blame is birthed in the fear of, of, the fear of acceptance, not being accepted. 
Blame is birthed through the fear of not being accepted. So Adam takes no responsibility, as she might have mentioned or emphasized in verse 12. The Lord said, did you eat what I told you not to eat? And his response is, you gave me this woman. I use that all the time. I, I feel like that's a metaphor. I have no idea why you need to use that all excuses. the time. <laughs> and, and you know, he's not actually blaming his wife. There, there's Blame. a difference. Eve blamed the serpent. Adam didn't blame Eve. Adam blamed God. Yeah. Because the root issue is that we always blame God. There's an issue between you and God when blame enters your life. There's something that you don't believe about the goodness of God, the heart of God, and the nature of God when blame enters your DNA, when it enters your tongue, when it enters your heart, when it enters your mind. So Adam blames God. Eve blames the serpent. And I, I think there's an interesting um, thing to point out here. I want to do it really briefly just because uh, I'm a bit of a Bible nerd at times. Um, we're not going to read this next passage, but uh, something happens here in, in, the next, in the next passage when they have kids. Adam and Eve have Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain kills Abel. Cain is a worker of the fields, and he's working that cursed ground. Abel is tending a flock. And what do they do? It says they're in the very beginning of chapter 4, the next chapter here. It says that it came time and they give an offering unto the Lord. They both gave an offering. Cain gives an offering. Abel gives an offering. But it says of Abel's offering, it was the firstborn of his flock. And their fat, and their fat portions, it depends what your translation says. But essentially, he's giving his best. Unto the Lord. He's giving his first unto the Lord. Cain did not, although Cain did give an offering. And what it says there is that the Lord said to Cain, um, well, first of all, he says, but Cain and his offering, had no, he had no regard for it. God did not like Cain's offering. Mm. Why are you so judgy, God? But Cain was very angry, and his face fell, which is a very nice way of saying, like, he had an extremely bad attitude. He pouted like a grown man shouldn't. And, and it was probably pretty traumatic. This is the kind of guy that's going to go kill his brother. So this probably was like a little bit like worse than our little fit when I'm hangry. It was, it was quite a bit beyond that. But it says his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen, O Cain? And if you do well, if you do well, meaning if you just bring me your best, will you not be accepted? Accepted. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desires for you, but you must rule over it. He's giving Cain an invitation to rule over the sin. And he says, will you not be accepted? He's telling Cain exactly what he needs to do. You're not accepted. I'm not gonna, it's not about acceptance based on anything other than, are you going to trust me to bring your best to me? Are you going to connect with me? You trust me. He doesn't. He doesn't trust the Lord. And what, what happens then is that, that that fear, that issue of acceptance is what causes Cain to blame, to compare. And that was the seedbed of the spirit of murder. And there's nothing in the realm of darkness that's worse than the spirit of murder. The seedbed had to do with acceptance. What he did with the seedbed of acceptance. Where, where are you with feeling accepted? It seems 
how we feel, whether it's feeling accepted in the family, feeling accepted by God, performance, whatever it is that is that realm in the accepted category, it's, it's so subtle where it begins. And it's so widespread of what it touches in the human spirit. You have an example about that as well, don't you? I do. We did talk about that. I am strong. Less nervous. I am wise. I am fierce. I am woman. I'm independent. Those are all good things, right? Our culture teaches them. National Women's Day. We just celebrated it. All of these different aspects to be strong. We don't need a man. That's good. Susanna, that's my parents call me. You weren't raised to need a man. I raised you to be strong. I raised you to go out into this world. You are powerful. You are free. And I realized in the past few years that I wasn't free at all. Because my family, it was a loving family, but they didn't know who they were. And if you don't know who you are, you can't impart what you don't have. And so they taught me that my acceptance was conditional. I wasn't accepted baseline. It was prove yourself. Are you good? Are you acting loving? Are you thinking of others before yourself? How are your grades? Are you doing well in sports? And to all of these, I could check, 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 check. Okay, great. Then I am accepted. But ultimately, that spirit, it's a spirit of an independent nature, an independent spirit. And that independent spirit, it was so subtle how it even came in. I thought it was great. At Christmas time, I got a present from my mom and my dad. My dad had a bank account. My mom had a bank account. My dad worked. My mom worked. My dad cooked. My mom cooked. And they're, they're still married, happily, mostly. But they're still together. And so I'm like, oh, that's what a unit looks like. And God's like, that's absolutely not what a unit looks like. That's opposing a spirit of oneness where when your mom was weak, your dad wasn't strong. She had to be stronger. And so that's what I grew up learning. And this independent spirit, which I see, and I'm like, yes, women, women's rights, women have voice, women are powerful. We do love women. Yes. I'm a woman. I'm a very strong advocate for women. Hence, we're preaching together. We're both pastors. I mean, we I love women. But it was realizing that this fear of acceptance ultimately was the seedbed for opposing my oneness with God. I was always thinking, even though I knew the right theology, I don't have to bring you anything, but I'll bring you my worship, God. I can bring you something. And he's like, what about when you bring me nothing? Will I still love you? What about when you have your worst day? Am I going to think the absolute best of you? And we know these in our heads, but do we live them out? And so it was this deep realization that this fear of acceptance was the, almost the seedbed, I'd say, for a spirit of independence, which in your marriage, ultimately, and in your most in intimate relationships, it kind of destroys it. And I don't look to him for strength. I just need God. I don't need you. But that's not what God said. He said it is not good for man to be alone. So it's like, oh, I actually do need you, but that requires being vulnerable, and that's really scary. Yeah, so, so Adam blames God. He takes no responsibility. Eve blames the serpent, takes no responsibility. Their fear is ultimately, I'm getting called out. And can I pass this on to someone else? The most freeing thing in life is when we take ownership of what we can control. 
put God back in his position of, as perfect father and then allow ourselves then to enter in relationally to a place where blame doesn't have a voice. You know, those who are critical and judgmental, isn't it so obvious to see their insecurity in themselves? You can even think of probably that. Who's the most judgmental person you can think of? Hopefully not someone in this room. Hopefully. <laughs> but when you think of those people, isn't it so obvious as a child of God to see their insecurity? It's a spirit of blame. It's a spirit of lack of responsibility. It's a, it's a spirit that ultimately wants to be accepted. And the root is right here. And God doesn't hide it from us. So blame is birthed through the fear of acceptance. Distance is birthed through the fear of vulnerability. And control, the third one is control is birthed through the fear of safety. Control is birthed through the fear of safety. Uh, so if you look at verse 16, we see this, this first man and woman clash. You'll have yearnings for your husband, one translation says, but he will lord it over or dominate you. This is coming with the curse. It's almost foretelling of what is going to happen throughout humanity under this curse that was not God's original intent for man and woman to wrestle, to compete, to struggle for the control. That control struggle is not birthed out of nation versus nation. It's not, it's not birthed out of a lot of the things political party, political party. It's birthed out of the ultimate union of man and woman and how control creeps into the most perfect, godly union. That's where control is birthed. One pastor said, the more out of control you feel, the more controlling you become. And I feel like that's something that... that you have never lived. Amen. <laughs> amen. But it's very true. The more okay, out of control you feel... Lived. I do become the very more controlling, controlling you become. Okay, I wasn't. Re I wasn't referring to you. I just. I can say it. We're vulnerable. We're free. We're raw. We're open. <laughs> but you know, there is this sense of when life feels out of control. It can be one area of life. Some of you, it's like your closet's out of control, and you start controlling your closet and organizing your spouse's or your roommate's stuff. I've had a roommate like that. I loved it. I loved it when my roommates would fold and put my things away, and then I I, I realized that was just their issue of control. Uh, <laughs> Anyone Mary Condoing their house uh, recently? I've actually been really blessed by that show. And it's, uh, it's showing me areas that I need to take control of. But many of us use things like, what can I control? Because everything else feels out of control. I think this is a very, this can also be something that's super subtle. I, my wife is really good about like, hey, end of the day, we have four kids. You know, it's Southern California. We don't have a mansion. So it's really easy for the house to feel out of control if we don't clean up at the end of every day. It's a good rhythm. And she sets a peace in the home by making that a priority. That's not her controlling the house. That's her releasing peace in chaos. There's a fine line, though, right? Because sometimes our, our OCD stuff, whether it's like, oh, I feel out of control with our schedule, so I'm just going to and do this and that. Or I feel out of control at work, so I'm just going to go bark at some people until I feel a little bit better about it. Or it can, be a lot of, it can be a lot of different things where control like wells up. It can be finances. That's super stressful. So the point is, is where is control taking root in your life where you need to surrender? Ultimately, the fear of safety, who's in control, is the root issue. 
And so what we'd actually like to do now is read something that, that we've we kind of formed together with our own thoughts, and we've read at the, the couple weddings that we've done in this house, which I think both of these couples are not here. Uh, Sierra and Joel are not here today, are they? No. Did they sneak Gabby in? And, Yosef aren't here. and then G- Gabby and Yosef aren't here. Well, and Chris and Margaret I was going to put them on the spot and have them uh, stand up looking eye to eye again and read part of what I read at their wedding over them. But will you give me some license to do that? It's not the it's whole really wedding. Good. What I'd, I'd like the picture to be, I should have put this on the iPad before I... You want it? What I'd like you to, to see in this picture is imagine a man and a woman standing here, covenanting the rest of their life together. And we're asking God for his heart through the realm of covenant and sacrifice. So what I told them is I have two main concepts on marriage. And really for us, we, as we were processing, we feel like these are two realms of the marriage covenant that impacts every single relationship and why God values marriage and begins humanity's relational dynamic with the concept of marriage and why he speaks to the church as his bride, as a marriage covenant, is because the realms of covenant and sacrifice are completely embedded into the human spirit. And when we understand this, we will understand relationship, we'll understand God's heart for relationship, and we'll live out relationship in the way that humanity was meant to. So I have two main concepts on marriage. I continually emphasize the couples, covenant and sacrifice. First on covenant. The marriage covenant you are making today. Again, imagine a couple standing before us here. That covenant is sacred and it's timeless. It's not simply a promise or a contract that we make in everyday society. Covenants were originally the agreement made between God and man. Typically, they define a relationship and are unconditional, carrying no expiration date. They intimately bind two parties together. A pastor once gave this illustration about covenant that's marked me. He said he loved to work with his hands, and he was given a welder as a gift. And he started to learn about the principles of welding. Welding is all about managing heat so that two objects will melt into one. The rod of welding is like love or passion, but you have, you have to control the heat so that they mold into one. Covenant is about passion, but you have to control the heat so they mold into one. Covenant is about passion. I'll repeat that. Covenant is about passion, and it's about sacrifice. But passion without sacrifice will never make two one. In Genesis 2.24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. A couple thousand years later, the Apostle Paul quotes these words of Adam in his letter to the Ephesians, and he went on to say that this isn't just about marriage in the natural. It's about marriage with God. Literally, that the two of us become one. That when we melt together, that there's no longer two, but now the goal is that this metal and that this metal now become inseparable so that if there is a break... It's never in the place that you weld because that becomes the strength of your relationship. God's heart has always been to become one with his creation, with us, to have intimacy with those he loves. From the beginning, the marriage covenant between two people was always to be a reminder of God's heart for his entire creation. Never forget that. That's covenant. Now, many of us have thought or been taught that God's purpose for us to leave this planet Earth behind and to go up to heaven in the sky and that in between 
He has simply given us some basic rules by which to live and to act. And unfortunately, this is a severe perversion of what the Bible's message is saying. We human beings have been commissioned to be living symbols of heaven and earth. That heaven and earth creation was put in a place at the beginning that we read here back in Genesis that is ultimately to be consummated in a wedding. As we read at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, of course, what is spoken and described all throughout God's account of history deals with marriage covenant. God is like a bridegroom and God's people are like the bride, just like Adam and Eve in the garden. There is purpose. It's not just about God and his people and everyone else on earth can do whatever, no. When God and his people get together, there is purpose in the covenant. The purpose is that all creation would be made new. The entire biblical story is meant to move from creation to new creation, from covenant to new covenant. God's covenant with his people and then between Christ and the church ultimately is meant to point us to the ultimate renewal of all of creation. God's purpose was to sum up all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus' entire life had its climax in an act of selfless, loving sacrifice. Now, for a few thoughts on sacrifice. Stories of war and of battle, they seem to strike deepest to me, at least, on this subject of sacrifice. I remember as an adolescent watching movies on war and being gripped by the acts of bravery and sacrifice, and it's always bothered me to see the accounts of soldiers who were gripped by fear and could never perform their duties as soldiers. Can you think of that? I always think of that beginning of Band of Brothers where the guy's just like so nervous he can't function. They're gripped by fear and you can't even perform your duty as a soldier. And I've always wondered, is that how I would respond in war, in crisis? Then I recall seeing an account where a group of soldiers are in a room together when a grenade lands right in the middle of them. And without a single hesitation, the closest soldier sees it, looks at the others, straight in the eye. And without a single regret, without a single hesitation, he puts his life on that grenade. Entering into those kinds of moments has marked me as a young man, even if just observing them in film. But have you ever wondered what is that that causes someone to do that? Have you wondered where people like that come from? And I've shared this illustration before and I shared it with them. But Simon Sinek gives this this act of, of bravery and sacrifice where he had a soldier that he interviewed that was, was working medic in a, in a helicopter in Afghanistan. And there was video because of a GoPro camera on his head. And he, he gets this video and, and he sees this guy bringing wounded soldier after wounded soldier back to the helicopter. And then there's this moment there's bullets flying by. You can see the whole thing. Just amazing to see live war in action. And you can see this medic that's completely exposed and vulnerable, dragging these soldiers out of harm's way into a helicopter where there's still live fire coming on. And he takes the time and he pauses and he bends over and he kisses the forehead of this wounded soldier. Turns and goes back out for more. Sinek asks this question. Where the heck do people like that come from? 
the initial conclusions are that they're just better people, right? Better people are attracted to the concept of service like the military. But here's the thing that's completely wrong. The answer is that it's the environment. If you get the environment right, every single one of us has the capacity to do these remarkable things, to live sacrificial lives. And more importantly, we have the capacity to. I would add to this that it's part of our DNA as being part of the created order of those made in God's image, made like himself, where we all carry the same capacity of selfless sacrifice if we come into the environment that we were created for. What's interesting about these Marines is that they aren't leaders because of the benefits or so that they can be served, but because they go first. They take the risk before anyone else does. They choose to sacrifice so that their people may be safe and protected and so that their people may gain. And when they do, the natural response is that people will sacrifice for them. They will give their blood and their sweat and their tears so that their leader's vision come to life. And when you ask them, why would you do that? Why would you give your blood, sweat, and tears for this person? They all say the same thing, because they would have done it for me. And doesn't this sound like the words of our Jesus? And we love because he first loved us. The world seems to continually confuse this reality. So many leaders, they see their employees as those who follow them with the purpose to serve them as leaders, but we have to have it backwards, don't we? It has to be backwards. These military leaders had a deep sense of trust and cooperation. The problem, though, is that trust and cooperation, they're feelings. They aren't instructions. Husbands, try instructing your wife to simply trust and cooperate with me today, honey. It doesn't work. I can't instruct my spouse or anyone else for that matter to actually trust and cooperate with me. I can't instruct her to connect with me. It's a feeling. So where does that feeling come from? It comes from the environment. What compelled the disciples of Jesus to eventually live as he lived and then give their lives sacrificially in the same way he did? If you're thinking the Holy Spirit, you are correct. It was the Holy Spirit, but think about what he developed among them in terms of the environment his disciples were discipled into. He set an environment of love and purpose that was so immersed in safety and trust to a realm that was so far superior to the lack of safety and trust that was everywhere else so evident on the earth. He set this environment, Jesus did, an atmosphere where heaven and earth united like a marriage. And our marriage and our relationships are meant to do the same. And so I finished telling them this. Spend your lives committed to fostering this kingdom environment of safety and trust in your home, in your closest relationships, starting with each other. Let the passion, the love, and respect you have for each other be aimed at never compromising this environment. That culture that you foster in that environment is bigger than your worst days. That culture is the fabric that you carry with you into your spheres of influence. It's where your children will learn to carry these feelings of sacrifice, trust, and safety. 
and pass it on to future generations. Our society works so hard to stay in love. But may I propose that you will find this endeavor far simpler by choosing to establish an environment of safety and trust, making sure that the other feels above all else that you are looking out for her and that you are looking out for him first. That's the heavenly garden that love thrives in. That's the garden that God created us in. In that safety that I know that I have someone who is always looking out for me before themselves. Feeling safe isn't the absence of danger and risk. It's facing life that's full of danger and risk. Knowing that this person is in it with me at all costs. This is the kind of marriage the Father created us for. You've already planted the seeds. You've got the tools. You've got an incredible community of family and friends surrounding you. Now go Enjoy a lifetime of the fruits of your labor. This is sacrifice with heavenly purpose. This is a marriage worth laying your life down for. So covenant and sacrifice is kind of what encapsulate what Christian just shared. And really that's the environment for healthy relationships. Covenant and sacrifice, we could say it's two almost pillars of this frontier church. And we're a kingdom family here that's running after revival. But years ago, as we were starting our family, the Lord stopped me and he said, stop. You're running after revival, but revival begins in the home. And if it's not happening in your most intimate relationships, don't you dare expect it to manifest in those outside this home. And this is uh, Pete Gregg. He's a prayer guy. We just came off our prayer, uh, I guess, sermon series. But he says this, I wish people were more honest about covenant relationships. Yes, marriage is glorious and wonderful and beautiful, but it is also the hardest thing ever. <laughs> Period. I was like, oh, that is so true. Except for Kristen, Jared, maybe. <laughs> but it may feel like sacrifice. And our covenant most intimate relationships are a lot of work and often work that isn't always re rewarding. It doesn't have an instant gratification, gratification, grat grat gratification. Thank you. Um, but on that sacrifice, fire will always fall. Fire always falls on sacrifice. We see it all throughout scripture and in our home, in this family, in our children, our highest aim is that they will be burning ones. That they will be burning ones, burning so brightly for God. And it comes from that sacrifice where fire lands upon that sacrifice. And I'm just going to highlight a little bit. He talked about connection, safety, and trust. Connection. Because I realized I was kind of teaching my preschoolers something eh, a little bit wrong. But I would ask them, does God ever not talk? His voice is like many rushing waters. Can you ever not hear the voice of God? Really wanting to instill in them that God is always speaking. And they're like, no, he always talks. We can always hear his love, his encouragement, his affirmation. And I'm like, yes. But then the Lord goes, except when I don't. And I'm like, What? Lord, hold on, we have to rewind. What are you talking about here? And I'm going to share two examples of this personally when I kind of came to realize this. 
And of course, then, if the Lord's talking, you're also going to find it in Scripture. Matthew 5.23 talks about bringing a gift to the altar of God. And he says, if you remember a quarrel, leave immediately. Go apologize. And once you have reconciled, come. So there was a moment, I've shared this before, so I'll share it briefly, but probably some of you haven't heard it, where I was at, we were at a school ministry retreat in the mountains, and Christian was with the children, and I had gone to worship that night, and was worshiping, talking to God, and then all of a sudden, it just kind of went quiet, and I was like, what's happening? It wasn't quiet in the atmosphere that there was, everyone was encountering God, music was going, and the voice of the Father dropped into my spirit, and he said, you're not being very nice to my son. And I was like, okay, well, my worship session just ended, and goodbye. I have to go now, find Christian, restore our relationship, and rebuild the connection that had broken, and then I can go back into the presence of God and bring my gift or my offering of worship. But it shifted everything in that moment because it's not just someone who's my equal, who's my co-heir, who's my partner in life. It's someone who's a child of God who he has entrusted me to treat like his own. So that happened for one example in our most intimate marriage relationship, but also I'm going to give an example about parenting. So when we discipline or adjust our children's actions, attitudes, behaviors, I always try or we always try to address the attitude first. Because if you can get to the attitude, the attitude precedes the action. And so with my son, one of them, his attitude had just been horrible at school. It had been, he's like, Mom, I'm embarrassed of you. I'm like, how can you be embarrassed of me? You're seven. You don't even know what that word means. Where'd you learn it? And then I was like, I don't know. I just learned it, Mom. And he actually didn't know what it meant when I asked, what do you think it means? And <laughs> it was some far off answer. It's like, that's not what embarrassing means at all. But I was sternly, not so kindly talking to him, being like, what is wrong? Why are you so frustrated? Ask Jesus. Go into your prayer cave, which I never teach anyone to do. But ultimately, the Lord goes, stop it. Stop right now. He said, right now, you're disciplining an action, but the connection's not there, and you're ahead of me. Restore the connection and tell him how your heart feels when he acts that way towards you. And so I just got down on his little level and looked in his eyes tears streaming from mine, and I was like, Judah, mom's heart is so sad when I am so excited to see you. I want to spend time with you, and you look at me like you don't have two seconds to spend with me and go the other way. And then something in him broke, and he starts crying because he realized the last thing my little seven-year-old heart wants to do is hurt my mother. And I knew the last thing that my heart would ever want. I was like, Judah, I'd die for you. I'd do anything for you. Do you know how much I love you? And God's like, this is just a glimpse. When you choose to walk away from me or when you choose, I'm too busy, I can't talk to you, God, that's just a glimpse of my heart. It's not mad ever, but it feels pain at the disconnect. So this whole value of building in connection in our most intimate relationships, I realize it starts, it, it starts here but the fruit of it goes down to the littlest ones. Where I'm like, if we can get their heart and connect to their heart, in the kingdom, we have everything. And then in that moment, I mean, Judah and I, we went from there. And at school, he's like, Mom, I'm so happy to see you. And he'll run up to me. And it wasn't, we never figured out where that lie came from. But we didn't need to. Because we tapped into the core of who he was. 
and the core of who I am, and that connection was bridged. And so if you can connect to the hearts of the most intimate relationships in your life, your children, your family, your friends, your spouses, it shifts so much. Like I've told Christian, I'm like, when we feel even overwhelmed in life, and I'm like, I can't do it, it's too much, all this stuff is happening, and we're not connected, I really can't do it. And I feel like I'm kind of suffocating under the weight of it. But if we're connected and in line, I'm like, we're going to conquer the world. Like, this whole world's getting saved. There's nothing God can't do. But I realize the strength of our connection is the foundation which God can build upon. So, amen. Uh, Safety, trust. And then ultimately this covenant picture which Christian just spoke of is the picture of God's heart for oneness. Our union with him. Oneness with him and oneness with one another. Our marriage is one of the loudest messages we will ever preach to our kids. And so we don't, in our family, run from conflict. We actually run towards it because love grows from overcoming. Sometimes we yell at the conflict. <laughs> the, about the conflict Sometimes. is there or not because I grew up pushing it under a carpet, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And we, like, and I always kind of got a little, I was like, so romantic but I'm like babe when did you know I was the one for you how did you know and he's like when I realized we'd gone through all these conflicts in our dating relationship of three years and he's like but nothing tore us apart it only made us stronger and I was like isn't that how it should be in heavenly kingdom relationships what comes against you it doesn't tear you down and tear you apart it makes you stronger and yeah our love grew through conflict because conflict is the price we pay for intimacy so our challenge kind of even with this connection is pay the price. It's worth it to be intimate in your most deep relationships. And it really, it takes a step going towards reconciliation, but it's worth it. You'll pay the highest price, but the reward, even that moment of humility for me as a parent, you should know all things. You have these thoughts go through your head. And the Lord's like, but you don't. Get down on your knees and tell your son how what he's doing is making your heart feel. And it was humbling, a little bit humiliating, but yet God restored the relationship. And when you have that strength in your family and in your home, I'm like, Jesus, your kingdom can build upon this.